Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back. I hope you got a chance to have some air and some food. Um, my name is Megan Hoyer. Uh, I'm the Director of Public Programs and Public Engagement um, here at the Whitney, if you weren't here this morning. Um, so it's um, the default MC today. Um, you'll <laughs> see me again um, at various moments, who knows when. Um, it's my pleasure now to welcome you back for our second panel of the day, um, which Candace Hopkins will be moderating. Um, and I'll let her introduce herself and the panel. Um, but it's my pleasure to introduce um, another surprise guest. Um, we're going to start the afternoon with a song. Um, and we have George Alexander, AKA Ofusky, who is a Muscogee Creek artist living in Santa Fe, New Mexico. His artwork explores contemporary indigenous culture with imagery that challenges the boundaries of what is considered, it's in quotes, native art. So please join me in welcoming George. Hello. <laughs> uh, about two weeks ago, I ran into Jean at a lunch in Santa Fe. And the, the person that we were with, I had sang a, a song for him. And I assume that's how she found out that I could sing. Because um, normally, I don't really sing out in public. <laughs> and so as I approached Jean to, to say hello, her first words were, hey, I heard you could sing. <laughs> and uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, I think I could sing. She's like, great. Uh, you're going to sing for me at the Whitney. OK, <laughs> see you later. And then I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> so um, uh, as, I, as was mentioned, I'm uh, Muskogee Creek. Uh, I'm originally from a small, small place called Mason, Oklahoma, which uh, a cow is your closest neighbor. And I grew up in a very, I, I don't know how to, how to describe it other than like there's a fine line between um, America and Native America. And on that fine line is my church. Um, we sang these Muscogee Creek hymns that were uh, inspired by the Gaelic um, Scottish uh, hymns that they would sing. And so this is a hybrid of that, of my traditions and also the Scottish. And so um, <clears throat> one of the things that I really like is that uh, I, I feel like we sort of hit the nail on something beautiful here between the collaborations of two different very diverse cultures. So I'm gonna share with you uh, a song uh, that I've learned over the course of my life. Um, and these songs were actually sing sung on the Indian Removal Act uh, when Andrew Jackson moved. My tribe was originally from Georgia and Alabama, but uh, we had a little real estate problem back in the 1830s. <laughs> Um, that was an old Charlie Hill joke that I just learned, too. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, I'm going to just go ahead and get into it. These songs were sung uh, on the Trail of Tears, and so they have, like, these uh, double meanings. Um, you know, one's about making it to the other side of uh, making it to Oklahoma, whereas the other meaning is making it to the other side of what is that next journey, as John eloquently put earlier. So, uh, okay, here I go. And bear with me, uh, I'm not really known for this. Oh, how happy Oh, how 
I'm Candace Hopkins, and um, grateful to be here. Grateful to be here among friends, heroes, um, hopefully soon to be friends. I wanted to begin this afternoon's panels by, by of course, uh, thanking the organizers. So my hands up to Megan, to Caitlin, to Jean. I know you're an organizer, Jean, of this. <laughs> Laura and all of those in front and behind the scenes, thank you. I'm also thankful for us being able to gather here together, and for most of us anyway, being guests on Lenape Hoking. So I wanna share some words about the incredible folks gathered on this panel, and you'll see them soon because they're gonna come up, but they insisted on speaking from the podium. <laughs> they're curators after all. Um, and of course, about John herself. I also want to share some thoughts about curating, as this is what the panel's called, curating. And that's also what I do. I'm a curator. And the reason I'm a curator is in large part because of the very people in this room and also the people on this panel. John Quick to see Smith, this is you. Pete Jemison, this is you. 
This is you, Leanne Martin, my first mentor, an incredible Mohawk curator living in Ottawa. And this is you, Jolene Rickard. This is you, Heather Autone. This is you, the late Marcia Tucker, a teacher of mine and a trailblazer like everyone else. This is you, Jeremy Dennis, who are showing me new ways. This is you, Patricia Norby. There needs to be more of you at the Met. This is you, Doreen Redcloud. This is you. This is also you to my late mom, Barbara McLean, my grandmother, Vera Matson, my great-grandmother, Jessie Jim, and her mother, Jenny Jim. They were all Clinket matriarchs. They were also our Gunnuk Study clan leaders in Carcross, Yukon, where I'm from, and also from Klukwan, Alaska, where we were from even before that. I could not do this job if they didn't teach me how to be fierce and diplomatic, outspoken yet respectful, and how to move mountains often under great pressure and almost always with very modest means. I know, John, you know how to do this really well. <laughs> and I must say, this is a little different now that I'm working at Forge Project. And that's an image of Forge there. Um, and also to how to use those skills in equal and sometimes unequal measure. But this symposium is also honoring you, Jean. But you're the first to tell us that it's not just about you. You bring your community with you, and that's why we're all here. You bring your community with you. And museums often forget this. They often want to make this only about one of us. This gathering is Jean's gentle and generous reminder that we are all related. And if we make this only about one of us, it will erode the deep roots of community. When I was writing a brief essay for the Whitney Museum monograph on John's curatorial practice, I began going through a small, small, small fraction of the 72 boxes of archives that Caitlin Chesson single-handedly scanned in the small back room at Garth Greenan Gallery. And it was there that I came across many handwritten letters to artists, to friends, to friends who are also artists, which now Jean is pretty much everyone you know. <laughs> Encouraging them, giving them feedback on their work, imploring galleries and museums to pay them, um, imploring museums to reimburse her for catalog costs, always modest, for shipping, what I also read were your letters to museum directors, big and small. And when I say that, I'm not talking about the size of the museum directors, I'm talking about the size of the museums. <laughs> also to tribal museums and community centers. But it was in those settler museums that she already had her foot in the door. She was educating the directors in her usual firm yet kind way. And one by one, and one by one, she was creating allies. And she was doing it in these large and small spaces all across the country. And I must say, she's pretty good at converting people. And Jean's archives contained dozens of brochures, and they advertised events, large and small, that she had organized. And there were also things like accounting ledgers that were both typed and written by hand, and letters to administrators requesting and sometimes, again, imploring 
that they pay artists. It seems to be really difficult for institutions to pay artists sometimes. As well as asking you know, publishers to pay writers and vendors to do the same. But among them, there were also these long letters between Jean and other artists, often simply just talking about their work, giving them feedback. Artists would say, what do you think about this photo? And Jean would tell them what they thought, pretty honestly, too. It's pretty hard to get honest feedback from a friend. And in reading the letters, it was clear that these are not only close colleagues and friends, but part of a large network that stretches across the country and into Canada and beyond. And we, sitting here, are all evidence of that network. And what I learned through those archives and through those papers was that they chart a career and they chart a network of relations. This isn't about the career of one person. This is about a network of relations. John has curated, since this is a panel on curating, John has curated more than 30 exhibitions the majority of those organized in starting in the late 1970s, throughout the 1980s and 1990s, shortly after she had completed her master's degree at the University of New Mexico, after being told that she couldn't be an artist, that maybe being an educator was better. And this timing was important because this was when dominant colonial history was being questioned and open, openly challenged by us. And I imagine, and I said this, I imagine that Smith became a curator because she had to, and this is true for everyone on this panel. We became curators because we had to. So as a spokeswoman, and I think it's clear that she is, for Native American art, Smith is often on the front lines of our representation, and so are most of us. She is among the first to confront ignorance, racism, romanticization, which is violent too, while at the same time providing context and making meaning of our practices. You all heard of the first panel that sometimes we have to start at what I call sometimes ground zero, that we're still here. And not only are we still here, we're making your future too. So this is also the role that every single person on this panel plays, and it's not an easy one. It's also what I try to do with my incredible, brilliant collaborators at Forge Project. And at Forge, for the past year, we've had the privilege of gathering under this work by Jean that you see pictured there. That's part of our active lending collection, and you can find more details about that on our website. And taking you know, a card out of Jean's deck, we lend to tribal museums, we lend to anyone who can handle the work safely, and we try to make it as accessible as possible including sharing some of the shipping costs if it's a tribal museum or cover them, covering them completely. We need access to our work, so that's what we try to do. But this painting itself is a reworking of her Paper Dolls series, and you can see the original one in the exhibition, the floors above, and it's from the early 1990s, but this one is writ large. This work is colonial history writ large. It makes what has happened to us, to our ancestors, inexcusable. How we were made alien even to ourselves through boarding school experiences. How we were knowingly poisoned by trade blankets infected with smallpox. How we had our hair cut and our hair is sacred and placed in institutional uniforms that were an extension of the prison industrial complexes or perhaps they prefigured them. 
And these are the Indian boarding schools and the residential schools. And in the end, how for many of us, we were reduced to the violence of stereotype in the eyes of settlers, where headdresses have and continue to stand in for a people of more than 500 distinct tribes just here in the US. But as always, we refuse, and we sometimes do that refusal with a smile. And my fellow panelists will each share the ways in which we refuse, not only through our curatorial practices and our work, but it's not just about refusal, because through our work, we are making new worlds, distinctly native ones, by us and for us. And once again, the expansive practices of all of us working together has enabled an ecosystem of native art and has produced generative platforms for makers of all walks of life. So our presence, and people have said this before, but I want to repeat it, is our survivance. And when I speak of the impact of Jean's practice as an artist and a curator from everyone's impact, as an artist and a curator, I speak from this place. I see it as our role to find ways to make use of these resonances so that they can further erode colonial foundations. Something that I argued is a tradition long held by Native women, but it's a tradition long held by all of us. So I'll say before um, the panelists come to speak and share their worlds with you, what each of us are offering today are not necessarily decolonial models. They're non-colonial ones. And then if everyone in the museum world did things like these folks do, we wouldn't need DEI consultants. And it would actually save museums a lot of money. Just putting it out there. <laughs> and with that, I want to briefly introduce my fellow panelists but I know they'll do a better job of introducing themselves, but also in the order that they're speaking. And just a reminder that our presentations are meant to be about 10 minutes and that Jolene Rickard is deeply skeptical that we'll stick to that. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> we'll see, Jolene, we'll see. Um, so we'll hear first from Heather Autone, and Heather is someone that I've been grateful to know for many, many years. And Heather, along with her incredible collaborators at the First Americans Museum, has been able to create, I think, an indigenous monument by and for us. That hasn't happened before, I don't think. And Pete Jemison, just like Jean, so kind, but also a trailblazer. I recently was able to do an oral history with Pete that lasted four hours. <laughs> and in it, I learned of this incredible history in 1969 when Peter was living in San Francisco in the Bay Area and was witnessing radical street theater that led to, in, in some would argue to the occupation of Alcatraz and Red Power and the self-determination era, and there Pete was just being real quiet about it. <laughs> and to Doreen Redcloud, I'm grateful to know you. I'm grateful to know you because the Idol Jorg has quietly been doing radical work and honoring great artists, even when the bigger museums were not paying attention. And Doreen, Doreen's bio isn't included in your handout, so I wanted to read a bit about Doreen. 
Doreen's an enrolled member of the Oglala Sioux Tribe. Doreen received her Master of, of Arts in American Indian Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, and has a, has a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Ceramics at the University of Michigan, and Associate of Fine Arts in Museum Studies at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So if anyone's looking for an expert, I'd say that you know Doreen has the degrees. <laughs> And Red Cloud worked at the National Museum of American Indian, Smithsonian Institution, as a repatriation research specialist from 1999 to 2003. And if anyone's done that work, it's really hard work. And after a number of years spent working outside the museum field, she joined the Adeljorg in October of 2016, where she is curator of Native American art. And Jeremy Dennis. Jeremy Dennis, I just had the deep privilege of spending time in Shinnecock, uh, not at Ma's house, but near Ma's house, for a discussion that brought together members of Shinnecock community and members of the kind of museum world there on Long Island. And Jeremy, you're doing the radical work, because I've never seen a room that was almost equally divided with half native folks and half settlers, and there was a kind of line down the middle. But at the end, because of you, everyone started talking to one another. And Patricia Norby. Patricia is doing the hard work at the Met, and like I said before, she shouldn't be the only one. But I raise my hands to you because you're doing what no one was able to do at that institution before. So with that, I would like to invite Heather to the podium. Okay. I'm gonna try to have, I'm gonna have a little trouble because I was over there crying. <laughs> so you'll just have to forgive me. And um, if you don't, you can get over it. So um, my grandfather taught me always to begin with gratitude. And I'd like to thank first and foremost, John. For your vision your long-standing commitment to promoting contemporary indigenous art and creating a path to which I aspire. Thank you, Laura. She's become a friend over the last couple of years. I'm very grateful for her and a valued colleague. I'm so honored to be here, Megan, for the good work that you've done to bring us all here, and the rest of the Whitney staff. Uh, for the invitation, the hospitality, and also to my fellow panelists whose contributions I cherish. None of us works in a vacuum or as a single tide. As indigenous curators, our work began with our ancestors who carried our cultures and languages, our philosophies across generations, including generations that have seen tremendous loss. Our ancestors have been carrying our culture, but in another manner of thinking of this intergenerational gift, each generation is also making culture. And as it happens, interpreting indigenous culture and curating is another way to make our cultures, and we have been doing this for at least a century. Being from Oklahoma, I think of William Jones, Sack and Fox, who was the first native person to earn a PhD in ethnography in 1904. 
who studied with Boaz and like Francis Lafleche, who's Omaha, understood the importance of relying on cultural knowledge and forming interpretation and scholarship. I think of the Osage Nation Museum and the Osage Nation founding its own museum in 1938, supported by Osage scholar John Joseph Matthews as a tribal nation using its resources to tell their own story. There are others, Ataloa, and from outside of Oklahoma, I cannot help but include Ella Deloria among the many women. So it would be myopic for me to speak of my own work disconnected from the contributions of others. And thinking of this foundation in our community, the waves carrying our gifts, documenting our cultures emerged because we had been forcibly removed by the US government to facilitate the ethnic cleansing of the Southeast and beyond. And we recognized from being forcibly removed from our homelands, the places gifted to us by our creator. We understood then, as we understood now, how important our fight for our cultures was and remains. And how important it remains for us to not simply protect our knowledge and culture within our own communities, but to live it, to activate it in the here, in the now, and to use the wisdom of our ancestors to generate new cultural mechanisms to hold on to the gifts given by the creator. I don't know why there's a blank screen, so I'm just gonna go past that. So shortly after receiving a creative writing degree at IAI in 1993, I was hired to the IAI Museum to work in the marketing office. And I walked into a field that was primed by the good work of so many before me, so many in this room, uh, George Horsecapture, Truman Lowe, Gerald McMaster, Jean, Jolene, Sarah, Richard Hill, Janine Antoine, Joanna Bigfeather, and with emerging curators, Kathleen Ashmilby, Nancy Mythel, Ryan Rice, Joe Baker, all on the horizon getting ready to do big things. And it was a prime moment because, like a tsunami, the quincentennial of 1992 had spurred the indigenous community to respond with many exhibitions that provided a strong vision for what can be done with contemporary indigenous art. I've selected here just a few books that I read probably about 25 times each. Um, and this is not a comprehensive list of what was being done then. It's just thinking of exhibitions that I saw and that I read and followed with great interest recognizing the moment. And that term, the moment, has been used so many times yesterday and today. And here we are again. As an observer, Personally, I felt the impacts of these indigenous curators as we were all being connected culturally to the deep well of knowledge that fills the deepest wells of the ocean. And in that, I struggled with my own role. And I speak to this because it's been mentioned already by several, feeling the pull to be an artist or maker, a writer, a filmmaker, an advocate, wanting to be a good mother who fed and cared for a growing family. And so from 1993 to 2006, I explored my interests within my capacities to do professional work in several organizations that served our communities. And then I landed at grad school studying contemporary art history. Contemporary art history, not contemporary native art history. And in all these experiences, I worked through how I could use my culture to guide my work 
It was in grad school that I used my experience within ceremony, drawing upon indigenous philosophy, understanding the power of synergy to examine Walk Around Time, a performance work by Merce Cunningham with the stage set designed by Jasper Johns, accompanied by an audio recording that was initiated by John Cage, completed by David Behrman, all of this inspired by Duchamp's Large Glass. And after receiving encouragement from Merce Cunningham and Jasper Johns, I decided I really could take this back to Native art. And I believe that the artists want this. What I know confidently is that artists make art that resonates with the truth of our cultures. Contemporary expressions of culture and fervent visual discussions about the politics of our cultural identities. But I saw very little indigenous voice in the scholarship, very little indigenous voice discussing these works intelligently, even with the multitude that were published in the early 1990s. And yet the artists carried their tide forward. And while looking at the many projects and art being curated elsewhere, I saw too little Native art being examined for audiences in Oklahoma. So I decided to pursue it. And I recognized that while I have ambitions, and nobody will argue with that truth, um, there was limited access to fully understand what it means to curate with an indigenous methodology. And with my experience as an IAI student learning the mechanics of publishing, I felt that as mediocre as my work might be, I knew that I could feed those tides. And so I began formulating my own thoughts on how to bring the gifts given to me by family and community and the artists into the work of interpreting it. And with the willingness of the Native Arts community, I started curating and publishing with the traveling exhibition. It was a little show called Art from Indian Territory. And in 2006, we took that little show and traveled it around to five sites, rural sites in Oklahoma, in places where nobody expected any attendance, and every single time, shocked by how many people came out. And then I followed it up with a show called Looking Indian in 2007. And it was clear from the community responses, we set a record at the Untitled Art Space in Oklahoma City with over 900 people in that gallery on opening night and sold more art only, second only to this date, to the Jasper Johns show that they had there. It was clear from the community response, the communities where the artwork traveled and the community of artists who saw themselves represented, that this work was welcome and that my efforts benefited our native community. And my ideas about what it meant to curate were becoming clear enough to enunciate them. And so in 2012, I was hired at the University of Oklahoma's Art Museum as their curator of native and non-Western art. At the same period, working there and curating as much as I could manage with kids and a family. I also worked hard to keep a pulse on the many projects that were happening elsewhere. I was on, inspired by the ongoing good work at NMAI with Kathleen, the great work in Canada led by Candace and Sakahan. Sakahan blew me away. And the community-driven work by Joy Horse, Horse Capture at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. So for my part, I was beginning to formulate some clear ideas of how I wanted to curate through a series of projects. Starting with the 2002, I did two exhibitions from the James T. Bialek exhibitions. In 2013, I did Hopatui Art from the Hopi Community. In 2015, I did Enter the Matrix Indigenous Printmaking. 2016, From the Belly of Our Being, Art by and About Native Creation and All Native Women's Art Exhibit. And in 2017, Photosynthesis. So in 2018, you can imagine that I was hired to lead the curatorial team to build the inaugural exhibitions for First Americans Museum to fill 26,000 square feet in 38 months. 
I hope every curator in here took a little bit of a breath, because if I'd had any thought about it, I wouldn't have done it. As an institution that is led by a majority indigenous executive leadership, board, staff, many of our members, are, our staff are artists as well. We have created a place where we understand that our work is generating new knowledge, and this is at the root of making our cultures, to actively create culture for the community. FAM was the first institution where I brought this methodology to guide all of our work of course, including the curation of the exhibits, but also to guide the work cultivating institutional relationships with 39 tribal nations, commissions with 69 artists, and working with over 200 institutions for images and objects loans, as well as with the 67 community leaders and elders with whom we prepared 120 hours to facilitate 29 media projects in the galleries. This methodology was at the root of curating Winnico, where we shifted the authority of curation to the tribal nations, working through the complex series of conversations whereby communities selected what objects could represent them, and renaming the objects in their indigenous languages. More than advisors, the tribal nations taught us about the objects and worked with us on connecting these objects on loan from the National Museum of the American Indian with the descendants of the families who made or sold them over a century ago. This work continues today. I'm so proud of what our team is accomplishing as we continue to imagine new professional work in several organizations that served our communities in and oh, I realize I skipped a whole series of pages, so hold on just a second. Or maybe I didn't. Maybe I'm just almost done. I do. So this work continues, and I'm so proud of what our team is accomplishing as we continue to imagine new ways that museums can work with our indigenous communities and with our object relatives that reside within the collections of museums. In the last 10 years, I've become laser focused on creating indigenous projects that work with the four R's, with a special emphasis on publishing to contribute scholarship to the field. I believe that there is great value in bringing our indigenous philosophies to curation. I believe that as curators, we are making our cultures, enlivening them through our work, contributing to the future of what people, including indigenous people, know about their cultures. That work is cyclical. It's grounded in an ongoing act of cultivating relationships with mentors, elders, colleagues, mentees, cultivating the next generation. Curating is a creative act, and I believe that this is one way I can contribute back to my community and support the creation of our future. And those waters will continue to flow. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to the history that informs my work and to provide this overview of my work within the broader scope of indigenous curation. <clears throat> As I said this morning, Onanda Watga Ni Ah and Ningentikotan Wenichio Nengent Wenisade. It's a good looking group and it's a beautiful day. <clears throat> um, 
So the, the slide that you're seeing on the screen is uh, where that name Onandawaga comes from. The hill on the left we refer to as Ganundawa. And that's kind of where we began when a great serpent came and began to devour our people. And uh, we were forced to move to this hill to the right, which we kind of just see a slice of Nundawao. And Nundawao meaning great hill. And so we are the people of the great hill. So this is located on the uh, Finger Lake called Canandaigua Lake in uh, central New York, roughly western New York, but still part of central New York. And uh, you know where we where we come from, and every uh, every Labor Day, I light a fire on top of that hill to the left, on top of Nundawa, which is a signal for all those people living around the lake to light flares and to light uh, you know fires on the beach, and we create the ring of fire around the lake. And uh, that's a tradition that goes back a long ways, and uh, I've been continuing that tradition for I, I don't know I've lost track now. Um, 25 years or something like that. Um, <clears throat> uh, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about, and my wife uh, is going to try to keep me on track and not let me go over. Um, can we see the next slide, please? Uh, I can probably advance them, right? But I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, <laughs> how about that? There you go. So around 1979, I showed this piece uh, by Edgar Heap of Birds at the American Indian Community House Gallery which was then located at 10 East 38th Street, and Edgar was going to school in, uh, in Philadelphia at Tyler. And um, I, I wanna say a bit about um, re revision of the history that was given, or has been given. Um, yes, I was the first curator who really began to develop original exhibits, but there were traveling exhibits that had already begun to come to the community house before my arrival. And some of those who were instrumental in that uh, was John Garrigan, Louis Mofsey, Rosemary Richmond, Michael Bush, uh, Doris Anton, who was the uh, editor of Mademoiselle Magazine at the time, and uh, uh, our friend Laurie Shepard here, and as well Don Goodelk, uh, who uh, always reminds me that I wasn't the first curator, who <clears throat> never deceives me. So, um, so all this began in 1978 when I took a bus from Salamanca, New York to New York City and came out of the hills of the Allegheny Territory uh, to re, you know, reoccupy New York City and, um, and to start over again, something I had originally done in 1967 uh, when I came directly out of uh, undergraduate work and moved to New York City to become a famous artist. And ever since then, I've been working at that. <laughs> uh, you know, we, imagine this now. You know, we did about 30 exhibitions uh, during that time period, I was there, and, and of course, I was working with Jean, Edgar, and George Longfish. Uh, yeah, George Longfish. And um, we did it without cell phones, and we did it without computers. Think about that. You had to make a phone call and hope that they were home, and then catch them, and then send a letter and hope you sent it enough time so that you could communicate that you wanted to show their work, and then, then they had to ship your work, their work to you, you know. And we had to work all of that out, and, and there was no cell phone. There was, <laughs> there wasn't. Okay, so, <laughs> but we managed to do it. And I, when I say a shoestring budget, there's a person sitting in the room here who knows what I mean when I say a shoestring budget. And his name is Will Guy, and he really hates to be recognized. 
but he is here and he's been living in New York City since 1957 and he's Cherokee, but he did all of the renovation work inside the gallery that we had in Soho. Uh, Bobby Anko did all the wiring, Will did all the work on the inside as far as creating walls and you know getting things painted up and so forth. And um, Bobby I paid in Budweiser, Will I tried to pay in a little bit of cash once in a while. And this is true. I mean, I'm not making this up, honest to God. So, and we were able to open on time, on a kind of a schedule <clears throat> with, with our shows. Um, you know, in 1985, I decided at, at the suggestion of my cousin George, excuse me, John Mohawk, that I probably had seen enough of New York. I'd been here long enough and, you know, kind of struggled and sacrificed, and it was time to move on. And so I, re I moved back to a place called Victor, New York, kind of in the heart of our original territory as Seneca people, and I began to run a place called Ganondagan State Historic Site. And um, <clears throat> during that time period, I, I, met, I met some really good people along the way, and one of them I met was uh, Eugene Thaw. And Eugene Thaw is, is the one who created uh, Thaw Charitable Trust. And uh, it's, a Thaw, it's the Gene and Claire Thaw Charitable Trust. And, and what he was interested in doing was founding and paying for an annual biennial of Iroquois art. But the museum he chose was the Fenimore Art Museum in Cooperstown. And so I, I began working with Gene. And Gene was a real connoisseur. Gene literally made his, his major money by selling Renaissance drawings. And he would find other investors and they would buy a drawing, and very valuable drawing, and sell it. Um, and, and Gene had great taste. And um, eventually he got around to collecting Native American art. And his collection is still at the Fenimore Art Museum. Uh, the, uh, Cooperstown is more famous for the Baseball Hall of Fame, which is there. And, and for some, the Farmers Museum, that's also there. So from 2000 until the present, I have been doing an Iroquois biennial for the Fenimore Art Museum and done a lot of different things. Uh, New Textiles, and Marie was in that. Uh, four under 30 uh, artists were in that show, all women. Uh, most of them had had some, some time at the Rochester Institute of Technology. God only knows where I am. I've stopped looking at the slides. Okay, all right, well, just keep advancing things. Because okay, so so for those of you who don't know, this is Rick Glazer Dene. Rick Glazer Dene, um, Mohawk, grew up in Brooklyn, and uh, a family mostly from Ganawagi, but uh, he, you know he chose hard hats because of his ironworking heritage, and um, I showed quite a bit of his work. And this is of course Harry Fonseca, and uh, Harry. Uh, won a prize from Swaya, and when, that, when he got that prize as one of those emerging artists, uh, we did a show of his work along with others at, uh, at the American Indian Community House Gallery, which was then located um, at 380 um, West Broadway in Soho. Um, I had moved the gallery there in 1981, um, some sort of back and forth here, backing up and you know going forward since I wasn't using the slides. Uh, so one of the people that I also showed during that time period, and mainly driven by Edgar, was a show of uh, contemporary abstract artists. And this is Sylvia Lark. 
And coincidentally, Sylvia and I had gone to uh, Buffalo State uh, in Buffalo, New York, and, and we didn't see each other again for another, I don't know, 20 years or something like that. And I, I found her doing these monoprints and um, really lovely. Uh, we lost Sylvia far too young, uh, but this is one of the prints. And at the time that she was doing these prints, she was spending a lot of time in the Himalayas and, and really influenced by uh, Eastern thought and, um, and especially by these uh, candles that they made kind of out of, a, of, of a, uh, oil and that sort of lit up uh, rooms where she w was. And, um, and the, anyway, those, that lighting really influenced her work. Um, <clears throat> oh, and by the time I started working with the uh, with Fenimore Art Museum, there were cell phones and computers, <laughs> making my life a little bit easier. And this is one of my favorite artists, <clears throat> still today, Stan Hill. He was a he's Mohawk. He was Mohawk, I should say. He's deceased, but he was an iron worker. And he lost his son through a tra tragic accident, not ironworking, but a car accident. And he turned away from ironworking and decided to become an artist and uh, started carving an antler, and uh, antler that was given to him by Duffy Wilson. Uh, some of you may know him, a rather well-known Tuscarora artist. And this is one of the early ones that Stan produced, but I just think it's just the loveliest little piece. And I was able to do a retrospective of his work and to see him in tears uh, because of seeing all of his work together for the very first time, it, it was the most moving experience. And you know, nothing can replace that, that kind of happiness in the face of an artist who you admire. Um, <clears throat> this is another artist who is one of my favorites, Peter B. Jones, who is Onondaga Seneca and comes from Cattaraugus and uh, began his career at IAIA, and, uh, you know, um, but has really been very, he has really developed uh, bronze now. He works in bronze quite a bit, and he's done a few canoes uh, with, with people carrying them. Um, oh my God, one minute. Okay. <clears throat> Just for that, I'm going to sing. <laughs> and I really can't sing. Really, I, I'm, I'm not making that up. Okay. So, I, you know, I got so sick of waiting for museums to do the right thing, I decided to build a museum. And, and that's no easy task. I had to raise $11 million. And um, so what I did was, you know, I went back to the people who had helped me in, in various other places, uh, including Gene Thaw, including the Rock Foundation, including Ungwe um, Onwe, which is a Cayuga-owned business that's in Ithaca, New York. And, um, and to others that I had met along the way who had deep pockets. And, um, and, and so I built the Seneca Art and Culture Center and opened it in uh, 2015. And uh, you know, th this is like, I'm working for New York State Parks, right? And, and they're working against me. They're, they're convinced I will never be able to do this and I'm convinced I'll be able to do it. And so you know, we're, at, we're at loggerheads, but um, it, it happened, okay? And, and so at that time, you know, around that time, none of the big uh, institutions in Rochester wanted to really work with our friends organization. And now they're all falling over themselves trying to work with us. They all want to do some kind of a project with us. They're all coming to us from all different sizes of institutions to try and, and figure out how to work with us. And um, we're, we're letting them. Um, 
I also want to add one thing to Candace's uh, description. What happened was the White Roots of Peace was traveling in San Francisco, and they met up with Richard Oakes. And Richard Oakes was telling them about that law that when there was federal land unoccupied, you could go ahead and occupy it. And so Tom Porter, among others, and, and a woman named Dewa Senta from Onondaga told him, go ahead. And so then he did. He jumped off that boat and swam out there in his cowboy boots. If you don't know what the currents are like around Alcatraz, <laughs> how he did that. Oh, and by the, at that time, she's correct, I was working at Ghirardelli Square for uh, design research. And um, so I, was, I witnessed the whole thing, you know, from, from the shore. Um, they were short on cash, and I didn't think I'd be any help out there. Okay, so lastly, I guess, lastly this. Uh, oh, here's another artist whose work I really love. <laughs> Richard Nephew. This is a skateboard made out of a moose antler. You know, um, God, I wish I, I had bought this. Because he contacted me uh, once to offer it. I had been trying to get it from him for years. And he contacted me to offer it. And we were in the midst of this kind of mess confusion, and I, I just couldn't respond to it, but hopefully he hasn't sold it. And uh, it will, it will come, become part of the Seneca Art and Culture Center. Um, fantastic artist um, who divides his time between a lot of other things, but, but every once in a while he does one of these absolutely amazing pieces like that. Let's go ahead just a little bit, and we'll just run through these. Carl Beam. Showed Carl Beam's work here in about 1984. I think it was. Uh, gallery 10 had a gallery here briefly, and uh, Carl Beam, uh, I connected with him. Great artist. This guy, George Longfish. If you don't know George Longfish, he's unbelievable. Tuscarora and Seneca. Uh, okay. And Alfred Youngman. Alfred, the interesting thing about Alfred Youngman is that he is convinced, he is the one who convinced Fritz Scholder to start painting figures. <laughs> Seriously. Okay, so, uh, you know, at one point the NEA hired me to go around the United States and evaluate small arts organizations. The NEA, and the NEA traveled me all over the place one summer. And, I, and I, you know, I went hither and there. And, um, and it, during that time, I, I went to Duluth, uh, Minnesota. And, the, and I met a guy there and told me, he said, Fritz Scholder used to teach here. But this was before he knew he was an Indian. And he used to paint stripes. Right, used to paint stripes. Uh, so there's some truth to what Alfred said about him convincing Fritz to, to start doing figurative work because this is a very early piece by, uh, who, uh, by the way, Alfred Youngman did go to IAI. Um, okay, next one. Great artist, Tammy Tarbell. We lost her um, every once in a while. She would hit a period of depression and, uh, but just did, does the most beautiful work, has done the most beautiful work. Uh, one more. Oh, Carson Waterman. He's about to have a retrospective at uh, Onosa Grande, which is the Seneca Art and Culture Center now on the territory. Not the one that I built, but the one that's on the Allegheny Territory. They're going to give a retrospective to Carson, who's the Cataraugus Seneca. And, and this woman, Sally Benedict. Jean remembers Sally Benedict. When Jean said she was traveling through the North Country and I was telling her about the pollution, from the Chevrolet plant and Domtel and all the rest of them, Sally was the victim of that. Sally got an environmental uh, disease which took her life in the end, uh, but she did so much amazing organizational work 
uh, for the for the Akwazasni Mohawk people. And um, so anyway, for now I'll leave it at that. Danito. Good afternoon, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Doreen Redcloud. I'm originally from Chicago because my dad was from Pine Ridge and got relocated. So I call myself a relocation kid. And so, oh, sure. Thank you. I think I'll, I can remember the button. <sighs> um, thank you, Jean and the Whitney for inviting me to participate today and thank you to all of the wonderful curators and arts people and artists in the audience. I'm really humbled to be here. So making a PowerPoint for this presentation, I was like, oh, I need a subtitle. So I went with setting, setting the bar high for those of you who don't know about the Idle Jorg Museum. First of all, quiz, where is it located? Okay. I, see, I was making an assumption coming to New York that everyone's, you know, not a fan of the Midwest or hasn't been. So this is what the museum looks like. And being in Indiana, we have people that aren't very familiar with Native peoples. They are under the impression that Native peoples are, are gone. And so we'll have visitors come into the museum and they'll say, what's an idle jorg? Is that a tribe? And actually, it's the, the name of the man, the wealthy white man, who uh, founded the collection uh, of Western art and American Indian or Native American First Nations art. Uh, right now, our collection is 80% Native American and First Nations. So there's a couple great things that the Idle Jorg has been doing. Uh, for a while now. Uh, the museum opened up almost 34 years ago uh, this June. It'll be our 34th anniversary. In 1992, we began our annual Indian art market, and it's pretty much like 1% or 2% of Santa Fe or The Herd, where they have hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of artists. But um, you know, we have our humble market, and there's so many of us on staff. It's our one of our favorite programs because we have people from all over the U.S. and Canada and some from Alaska, too, that, that descend upon the idle jorg and make it a more brown place, a more happy place. Uh, fill it with beautiful art because it is about the art and the artists. These are some of the artists that have been attend attending our market for a while. We've got Paponi on the far left. She's Kansas Kickapoo Tribe and Citizen Potawatomi Nation. Nelda Shrupp, who is first rump uh, uh, nation. She's Nakoda, and she made my she made my skirt. And Emil, her many horses, a fellow Oglala, who is uh, associate curator of Native American art at the National Museum of the American Indian. Excuse me. So through our annual Indian market, uh, since we're a small museum and we are a nonprofit, we rely a lot on uh, donations and endowments. So we do have some donors called the Friends of Indian Market who provide us with money 
that were able to purchase art for our permanent collection on the far left. We've got Geo Neptune and the basket from 2017. Um, it's uh, an homage to the Pulse Club massacre. In the middle is Monica Jo Raphael. She's Anishinaabe Lakota, and that's a bracelet we bought from her in 2019. And then um, I guess on my right, far right, that's Alicia Old Bull, who is Crow and Salish, and we purchased that cradle board from her last year. I want to talk about um, those of us, or those curators rather, who have been supporting Native art for a long time, and some of you knew Jennifer Campolo-McNutt. It's been almost two years since she passed away. She was the curatorial force behind the Idle Jork Contemporary Art Fellowship, which has existed since 1999. So the fellowship in a nutshell, we have an independent jury that selects four artists from the US and Canada who are working in contemporary native art. And we at the museum, uh, we curators, in, in line with our um, community advisory group, we pick the invited fellow. And so there's Jennifer um, at the top left, and then the very top picture is the, the first homecoming. And we've got some fellows in the audience who were there at the first homecoming, and then the second homecoming in 2017. I also wanted to, um, uh, I usually go off on tangents, I'm sorry. So the fellowship, we award the fellows uh, unrestricted cash amount. It used to be $25,000, and then beginning this year, it's $50,000. We purchase art from them for our permanent collection, and we put on an exhibition of their work in the, every second November every other year. So this year, it's November 11, 2023. You're all invited. And um, we also create a catalog, and we have different uh, artists, past fellows, curators, right? And here is some of our past fellows. We've got John's picture up there, of course. Rick Bartow, Harry Fonseca, Jeffrey Gibson, Meryl McMaster, Mario Martinez, Brenda Mallory, Matthew Kirk, who was here earlier, Athena Latoka. Joe Federson, Corky Claremont, forgive me for not having your guys' picture in here. I do feel badly. I, yeah, because you guys, you guys are the best. So 65 fellows so far. And this is this year's fellows. Ruth Cuthand, who's Plains Cree uh, from Saskatoon. She's our invited fellow. And we've got Natalie Ball, who is Modoc and Klamath. Raven Half Moon, who's Caddo in Delaware. Mercedes Dorme, who is Gabrielino Tongva. And Dr. Sean Chandler, who is Grovant. He's president at Tribal College in uh, Fort Belknap in Harlem. Okay, um, I don't know how I'm doing on time. I feel like Jolene, I'm definitely going over time. Okay, real quickly. So, the original uh, Native American galleries hadn't changed much, much since it opened in 1989, and this is what it looked like, you know, typically by geographic region. You got to have a horsekin. Do you see the horsekin? <laughs> and so, 
I had um, come to the Idol Jorg in late October 2016, and my boss at the time, Scott Shoemaker, who's Miami tribe of Oklahoma, um, he's like, we're going to redo the galleries. I'm like, great, let's do it. He ends up leaving me in December 2020. <laughs> And right before COVID, and then we hire an exhibit design firm from Ottawa, Canada, and most of our meetings were online. So I can kind of relate to Heather's stress. I think Heather had more stress than me about trying to get things done. We did not um, do as much consultation with local communities as much as we wanted to because of COVID, but uh, we worked with our Native American Advisory Council. And the, far, the picture on, I guess, my far right or over there is the ribbing cutting uh, from last June when we opened before we opened the galleries and then afterwards we presented everybody um, with a blanket because it, it's it's all about the community and not being afraid to to ask for people's input and to continue to have that relationship after the project's done in a nutshell, our big idea was since forever. That's what I like to say instead of time memorial, because we Native peoples have been here forever. The first peoples of North America have created items of aesthetic beauty for diverse purposes. Therefore, art is an essential part of being. It has always been and continues to be a way for Native peoples to express, exist, persist, and resist. Being in Indiana, we have to stress to people that Native peoples are still here, we're still alive, and that we're diverse, and we are the authority of our own stories, and that Native art is on a continuum. What's old informs the new, and vice versa. So something that was made hundreds of years ago was contemporary. Something made hundreds of years from now will be rooted in tradition. Uh, we have three themes, and I think I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to, okay, instead of um, doing the usual breaking down the galleries by geographic region, we did themes that are common to most Native peoples, and that's uh, relation, continuation, and innovation, and I'll go over the relation part. It's really about Native people's relation to land and spirit, animal and plant, and to one another as a community. And for some people, that's the hardest to, to grasp our connection to the land. Why, you know, when you always are around Native peoples, they're always like, who are you? Where are you from? Because it is about the land. And since we're in the Midwest, um, we also wanted to talk about the mounds because there are cable shows that like to say that ancient aliens built the mounds, which is not true. It's related to people Native peoples living today. And so ours, uh, here are a few pictures. It's hard to um, get a sense of it, but we have our land acknowledgement and then we had a condensed version so you could be literally walking on the, the, the land acknowledgement. Um, this is an introductory space. That installation was commissioned by 2019 Idle Jorg Fellow Hannah Claus, who's Bay of Quint Mohawk. And then we have an education space because we do get a lot of uh, school groups who visit and want to learn more about the peoples, Native peoples of Indiana. 
um, the other slide is talking about the relationship to, to land and to those ancient places. We got continuation. We came up with low interactive, um, low tech interactives that I see people of all ages um, playing with or working on. And in this section, we're referring to boarding and residential schools, forced migration, and relocation. The last section is innovation, which to me is really celebration of native art, all, all native art. And then we have a bookend entrance um, with the same kind of thing, talking about um, artwork that's related to creation stories, because we have our own creation stories. And I wanted to end on that note, that young lady on the quilt square, because it's all about, um, I, for me personally as a curator, want other Native peoples to come to the Idle Jorg and feel like they see themselves or it's like a home. Thank you. Hello, everyone. <laughs> um, thanks for your patience. Um, so good to be here. My name is uh, Jeremy Dennis. Um, I'm from the Shinnecock Indian Nation in Southampton, New York. Um, I first want to uh, thank you, Joan, for bringing us all together, and also congratulations on over four decades of artwork. So amazing. Um, I look up to the work that you have in the galleries. Um, I've also been working with the um, students here at the Whitney each week, creating work inspired by your portfolio. So thank you again. Um, I also want to thank Laura, Caitlin, Megan, and the, uh, Whitney. Um, you all actually came out to uh, Ma's house, which you see on screen, uh, back in January of this year. Um, and so, as I mentioned, I've been also been working with the Youth Insights um, uh, program here at the Whitney. I've been here um, on and off for, I believe it's been 14 um, weeks, coming every other week. So I, I want to give thanks to Araya uh, Henry and Maria Gonzalez for really facilitating <laughs> and leading the initiative. So I, I come in as a visiting artist. Um, which of, um, much of what uh, Candace actually mentioned earlier resonated so much with me um, in terms of curating. Um, when you're an indigenous artist, sometimes you're stepping into opportunities thinking that you have the artwork, you have the artist statement, you can just hand it um, off and they'll be understanding. But I'm sure there's, there's so many native artists in this room alone that um, when you're offered opportunity, you actually have to step into the curatorial role, volunteer so many hours in terms of empathy, understanding, interpretation, um, just every single role in terms of just being accepted um, like every other artist. So uh, before jumping into Ma's house um, and the project that is up and coming, I want to start with these two um, illustrations I believe they're both, if I'm not mistaken, done by David Bunmartin, who's also Shinnecockin here in the room. Uh, is that you back there, David? Oh, waving. <laughs> Thank you, David. Um, 
So these beautiful illustrations represent the uh, 13 original tribes of Long Island from Brooklyn to Montauk. And on the right is our tribal seal and flag as Shinnecock people. And there's just so much symbolism um, in terms of what makes us unique as a people. Um, of course, we're uh, one of over 570 other fed federally recognized tribes as of 2010. And so we're a coastal people. We have the indigenous box turtle in the center, the two Atlantic right whales, and many other symbols that represent who we are and our proud 10,000-year uh, history. But perhaps um, most famously um, in the 21st century, we're most known for our annual Labor Day weekend powwow, which I invite you all to come out and, to, and attend. There's uh, tens of thousands of people who come out for this four-day weekend. Um, hopefully for the first time, um, we just sent in an application, but Ma's house itself will have a booth among the over 100 vendors um, who come out each year. And so if you're unfamiliar uh, with a powwow, it's a gathering of nations, the public is invited, it's a celebration of traditional food, art, craft, dance, storytelling, and many other things. Um, with that, a little bit of context, I want to jump into Ma's house. And so Ma's house is a... Um, today a communal art space on the Shinnecock Indian Reservation, but in the 60s, it was our family home. And so on the left, as you see, that's my older sister Kelly, uh, Dennis and I, um, we're actually standing in the house um, during the early renovation. So you see there's holes in the walls, there's um, cobwebs, there's mismatching mix um, floor, <laughs> um, new wood and old wood. Um, this is a home that's actually dedicated to my grandmother. Her birth name is Loretta Silva. Uh, this is an old family photo um, with me in the foreground with a blue ball. My older sister Kelly again, uh, cousins Teal and Al, and Ma uh, just cropped partly on the right. But this is a uh, family home that has seen so many generations, so many cousins growing up in the house. And so this is just one of uh, hundreds, if not thousands of family photos that have taken place here. Um, when uh, Ma passed away in 1998, um, she wasn't an artist. Um, her daughter, uh, Denise Silva Dennis, my mom is an artist, but she always uh, dreamed of turning her home into a museum of some sorts, um, dedicated to Shinnecock history, dedicated to family history. And so we try to honor that in every uh, step of what we do at Ma's house. And so just a little bit of background. Um, when you do have to um, rebuild a home on a Indian reservation, there's so many hurdles in terms of uh, fundraising. Um, you really can't easily get a mortgage or a loan from a bank. Um, and so in the case of Ma's house, we actually started a GoFundMe to save our family home before it um, ended up falling in on itself. So you get a little bit of an impression on the left side, but there were holes in the walls, there were raccoons living in the uh, vacancy of the house. Um, it was really a desperate situation. But um, because of the generosity of those who contributed, over 400 individuals, we ended up dedicating it to more of a communal space rather than for my own personal gain, an art studio, for example. Um, another motivating force behind uh, turning this into a communal space is that we started in June 2020 and um, as we all know, in May 2020, um, George Floyd was murdered. The uh, BLM um, movement was happening. And so uh, Shinnecock itself, if you've never been to our powwow, we have um, a lot of mixed ancestry from people who are white passing, people who are black passing. 
And so we wanted to dedicate this space not only to indigenous artists for creation, for curating and exhibiting, but really a space for um, people of color, artists of color to come together and heal using art as that platform. And so this is another before and after image of our, um, I, I usually describe it as an informal gallery space, but this is one of our very first ever um, exhibits that we've had featuring in this case, uh, Beau Briere, who's a um, artist of color um, on the right, and then the um, complete renovation on the left. So it was a really <laughs> desperate project and um, over a year of just tearing everything down and replacing everything. Uh, this is another example, uh, Yan Yan Huang, who um, really just transformed the space. Um, it's hard to believe how space can be utilized. Um, space as we know it is such a gift and so rarely seen in that way. Um, being Shinnecock, we don't have a, um, a currently a museum to uh, practice um, coming together to uh, debut our art and have a year-round space. So building this on Shinnecock was something that um, just flourished and was a dream of ours. Um, this is another artist, um, Ali Mitchell, who is a performance and author. So we have an array of different visual arts, performances, um, poetry readings, and we really, um, perhaps in this presentation, it's more of an invitation to come out and experience Ma's house. And I always try to say yes to everything. How can we collaborate and have that reciprocity? How can everyone benefit from that visit? Um, so this is another example, Pamela Allen, um, another example of uh, curating at Ma's house. And we also have earthworks, um, outdoor works that are um, sort of perpetual. This is by Pamela Allen, who's uh, Jamaican descent, but used uh, several decades of local seashells to create this mandala right in the front yard of Ma's house. And I think that's uh, so appropriate because um, as many of us in the room know, there's something called shell middens that mark indigenous presence um, all throughout the Americas, along the coastlines, along um, wherever there's uh, shellfish. And so having this at Ma's house is just a reminder of the past, the present, coming together and being um, inseparable. Um, in addition to just having art on the walls, just having that showcase and kind of that living art. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Um, we also have a host of different programs. I'll also go quickly through the slides. Um, we've had over 23 artists of color come through so far. Um, if you ever do find yourself on the East End, we have weekly workshops led by my mother, Denise. Um, this one I could jump into for a whole <laughs> length, but we had Teen Vogue also cover the Moss House story and interview Shinnecock youth. We also have an amazing library of over 400 Native American content books from academic journals to fiction, poetry. Uh, we now have Joan's uh, catalog from the Whitney, of course. Uh, we have to get it signed, <laughs> however. Um, and maybe I'll um, just spend time on this one. Uh, this is a solo show by my, my mother, Denise, just one generation before me. But this is her first ever solo show after uh, 40 years of being a practicing artist. So the immediate need for spaces like Ma's house is so apparent. There's such a need for indigenous curators to um, make that possibility happen. And um, I'll just end on this slide. There's so many collaborations, so many partnerships that we've had um, despite being such a new organization. So thank you all, hope, hope you um, come out and visit us. And uh, I'll leave it at that. <laughs>
Hello, I'm Patricia Marroquin Norby, Associate Curator of Native American Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I would like to first say that um, as a woman of Purapacha descent, I am a guest here in Lenape Hoking, and I offer my respect and sincere gratitude to the indigenous peoples here who call this place home and everyone here in this room today. I'm incredibly honored to be among such esteemed colleagues, and I would like to thank Adam, Laura, Caitlin, Megan, and the rest of the Whitney team for inviting me to be part of this program. I'd also like to thank my fellow panelists um, for your beautiful presentations. It's really quite incredible to be here in this space with all of you today. Jolene was my one of my first supervisors at NMAI, and then, uh, who else? Oh. Doreen and I, we went to a Pearl Jam concert years ago. <laughs> That's when we first met. So just looking at all the reflecting that's going on um, and seeing so many familiar faces and you know, I was seeing uh, people on the screen in my um, fellow panelist presentations, Dr. Brenda Child, who was my, who was my um, mentor and still dear close, dear friend and colleague um, who was my dissertation advisor at University of Minnesota Twin Cities, um, and then also Truman Lowe, who was the first person who brought me into the museum world when I was still um, working on my MFA at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So to see all these people and how we were all interconnected and then how everyone was connected to Jean in some way is really quite incredible. I wanted to start with this slide um, because this uh, image, a poster of this image, along with Jolene's photography, was hanging in the printmaking studio where I was um, working on my BFA in the early 90s at a small Catholic college in Dubuque, Iowa. And it was a pretty radical, small Catholic school that had a bunch of really kind of radical nuns running the place. And they were the kind of women who, although they were nuns, would go out in the courtyard, courtyard and smoke cigarettes and swear and you know, talk about all kinds of things. It was actually um, pretty shocking um, to go to and exciting to learn from these women. And to have Sister Louise have this poster and then Jolene's work hanging in our printmaking, uh, printmaking studio was actually um, pretty um, incredible. Uh, so what I want to say about this and also Jolene's photography, which I wrote about recently for, um, for an exhibition, was that, Jean and Jolene, your work kept me going in the early 90s. I was a single mother um, going to art school and working as a hotel maid, scrubbing toilets just to get by. And coming to the studio every day was my escape from the stress of the world and you know, all the complications with being a single parent. So I need to say that because Never in my life did I ever expect to be where I am today. And I think artists need to know how impactful their work is for many people, especially indigenous people. And it doesn't matter where you come from, which community you come from, when you're an indigenous person and you see that other indigenous person across the room or at an event or somewhere you know, that you don't expect to see them and you both look at each other and you nod at each other, or you see that native work in a gallery somewhere, it means something. And so I need to say thank you. That's my way of saying thank you. 
I was really excited to hear in the conversation last night that they were talking about maps and the way that Jean just exploded the boundaries and borders of maps and what maps mean to Native people and all our different interpretations of them. Because when I first started at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, I know many of you were familiar with the 2018 uh, Charles and Valerie Diker installation, Art of Native America. And one of the first things you saw when you walked into the gallery space was this big flat map on the wall that designated or delineated where all the Native people were or where they were from. And I immediately looked at my colleagues and said, that has to go. And I received a little pushback. And I said, this is not an indigenous map. This map doesn't show interconnections between the communities. It doesn't show seasonal migrations. It, it just, it doesn't show everything about who we are, all those interrelationships. And if we're gonna have a map in this space, we'll have an indigenous map. And so they respected that. And I also had to emphasize further, when you go into uh, a modern, in the modern and contemporary wing, we don't have a map of where Cody, Wyoming is to, for uh, Jackson Pollock to explain where he's from. So why would we have that in this, in this space. And so we took down that map and instead um, we installed this land and water statement. And I wanna, I wanna say that it's not, a, it's not an acknowledgement that you know, we've been hearing so much about. This is a statement about how we'll work together in collaboration with Native communities moving forward. And I'm just gonna read really quickly from it. Okay, we commit to pursuing continuous collaborations with indigenous communities and present native art in a manner that is inclusive of indigenous perspectives. Involves guidance from source communities and creates space for respectful listening and thoughtful dialogue. We'll work to advance indigenous experiences in the Met's collections, um, exhibitions, and programs. We will strengthen our awareness of historical and temporary environmental issues in New York region throughout North America in order to thoughtfully reckon with our institutional legacy and its impact on the land, waters, and original peoples of this place which are and always will be inextricable. So that was installed in 2021 and we're now in 2023 and moving um, quickly into 2024 for museum people. We always think a year or two ahead. And um, we've kept those promises. We've steadily kept those promises in many different ways um, through our exhibitions, which include uh, native community members, artists, um, individuals, as collaborators, as co-curators, um, as authors, in every way that we possibly can. People ask me, how do you make change at the Met? What do you do? What's your strategy? And I say, my, I, I keep my foot in the door. I keep that door open for as many indigenous people as possible to bring them in and welcome them and help them to feel welcome in this space. Um, I wanna mention this installation because this is the opening foyer of Art of Native America. We changed this space, we shifted it during the pandemic to create a contemplative space that was warm and inviting and uplifting for people who wanted to come into the museum, um, get out of the busy New York uh, city life and be able to sit quietly. And I love that combination of, of these two works by two powerful native women. Uh, Marie Watt talked about how blankets are one of the first things that a human being experiences that they're wrapped in when they're born. And so we wanted to have something there that talked about community, express community and connection and warmth and welcoming. This is the same space today. Uh, this is a project that we worked on with uh, Dr. Brenda Child, who is one of the premier uh, scholars of the Jingle Dress. 
And uh, we worked together with Brenda to curate this um, installation on the jingle dress. So sticking with the theme of the pandemic and realizing people are still healing from that time. That installation led to a program called um, Sound and Healing, which included Brenda in conversation with Robbie Robertson and also jingle dress dancers from uh, Canada and the US, and then also Silver Cloud, Silver Cloud singers as a host drum. And then Water Memories. Um, this also included a number of community members expressing their connections, um, non both native and non-native um, connections with water, um, relationships with water, memories of water. Uh, we also invited community members from across New York City to uh, create mirror shields, um, and Chinupahanskaluger came and led a workshop. Everybody was compensated for their time. Um, everybody was included in the exhibition um, listing and acknowledged, and uh, their mirror shields covered the entrance. We wanted people to see themselves when they walked into that gallery space. And then these are now deinstalled and will be given to um, uh, land and water protectors in Minnesota. I want to talk about this jacket really quickly because it belonged to Rick St. Germain of La Couture Indian Reservation who spent a summer on Alcatraz Island and was incredibly moved when he was 19 years old, took that um, activist energy back with him to La Couture Indian Reservation to fight uh, the lease, the renewal of the lease for the winter dam on the reservation and uh, they won the tribe won control of that dam. It's, and it was just powerful in this um, gallery space uh, with all the white marble. And then our exhibition projects moving forward throughout across the museum uh, include colleagues uh, that we know or have connections with contributing to different projects. And then our next one is Grounded in Clay, which includes 60 um, Pueblo community curators. It's the first community curated entirely native community curated exhibition at the Met. And I just wanna say, cause I only have a couple of minutes, you don't have to worry Candace. I know that I'm not supposed to be the only person there. And we, and I wrote in the first time for the 150th year um, history of the Met, a new native arts initiative that will include two new staff members and also open a new study center, our native arts research center at the Met. So um, there is change happening and when you're a native person who comes from south of the border, when your ancestral roots come from south of the border, you never know how you're gonna be treated by both white people and native people. We're the indigenous people are usually in the dark, cooking the food, making your food in the restaurants, cleaning houses, taking care of your children. And so I just wanna say thank you to everyone for your hospitality. Thank you. So I have to say that Jolene was half right. <laughs> but I think we're right on time, but I don't think we have any time for questions. And I also didn't want to make it too short because I think every single word that every person shared was incredibly important. So thank you. And if you can give one more round of applause to our incredible panelists. Please remember the histories that they shared, the artists that they shared, the features that they shared, because we can all learn from that. So thank you.
Thank you so much, Candice and Heather and Doreen and Patricia and Jeremy and Peter. Um, you're all invited to have a cup of coffee and a, some, a little snack. I'm not exactly sure what the snacks are. Um, right outside the theater. You don't have to go outside. Just come out into the lobby where Jean's work is on view. Get, a, get something. Pick me up and we'll be back here just after four.